There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today's episode is all about taking buck inventory in the early summer. Before I get started on this one, I'm going to just apologize in advance. I have COVID right now, and my brain is a little mushy. Uh, Well, maybe foggy is a better word. Anyway, I'm going to struggle through this one a little bit, and if I say something dumb, you got to forgive me. I'm sorry. With that out of the way, my friends, while we are a little early here for really nailing down the inventory of bucks on your hunting grounds, it's worth thinking about maybe making a little plan. And taking inventory seems pretty simple. And it can be, but it's also something that kind of gets misrepresented as only valuable to private landowners who are managing deer or for folks who only hunt after they've established a hit list and decided what bucks are shooters and which ones aren't. There's a lot more to this stage, or there can be anyway. And this is a strategy that can be valuable to anyone who deer hunts. So in this episode, that's what I'm going to make the case for. I'm going to break this inventory thing down way beyond what we usually see when it comes to getting pictures of bucks in the summer. Now, I don't want to brag, but I was taking deer inventory before it became the cool thing to do. Now, I'm joking, of course, because even before it had a label, whitetail hunters were always trying to figure out who was living where they could hunt, and the bigger the deer, the more we focused on them. We just, I don't know, at least for the first several decades of modern deer hunting, never had tools like trail cameras. And they really are the linchpin to this whole thing. But they're also limited in their ability to help us. Does that sound super clear and concise, like it came right from the mouth of a professional writer guy? Sorry, I know it's not. So let's start with the very basics before we move on to the nuances of summer inventory. Buck inventory, you know, or summer inventory, whatever. It's a simple act of trying to tally up who lives where you can hunt them and just to see how many of them there are. For hunters in deer-dense states, 
This might just include top-end bucks, as well as some of the up-and-comers who are off-limits. For others, living in lower deer-density areas or just hunting tougher ground, it might just be an attempt to figure out how many deer of all shapes and sizes are around. This helps inform decisions on whether to fill antlerless tags or not, and whether to hold out for a certain size buck or just let one fly whenever you get antlers up close. Inventory is useful for the hunter who's been on the same farm since Carter lost the Oval Office to Reagan, or for the hunter who is just starting to mess around on a new piece of ground. It's valuable to the private land hunter, and it's valuable to the public land hunter. Although, as you can probably guess, this is tied to a pile of local and situational variables. Now, with that out of the way, I want to start with an easy spot. The easiest spot probably to take inventory. Private land in a state with no restrictions on feeding or minerals. If you're lucky enough to have a spot like that in a state that hasn't put the damper on how you can concentrate deer, your task is pretty easy. Just go buy yourself a salt block or a mineral block and then head on into the woods. Put it on the ground about eight feet from a tree and then put your camera on that tree. Done and done. Easy peasy. Now all you have to do is let that sucker soak until, I don't know, August. Then you go in, count up the monster velvet bucks you've got on camera, you know, making sure to divide them into neat piles of deer you'd kill and deer you wouldn't. And that's about it. You've got your inventory. As you can imagine, doing that doesn't give you much insight on how to hunt those deer or anything else but it does establish a baseline for the season. That's better than nothing. But what if you can't run mineral sites or salt blocks or dump a pile of apples out every week? Well, then you have to think about the deer a little more, and I think that's a good thing. This issue with chronic wasting disease in whitetails is not going to go away, likely ever. So rules against concentrating deer with attractants are probably here to stay as well. You can think of that what you will, but it is the law of the land in many, many places. And it's also worth noting that some states outlaw all types of attractants, while others have specifics in place on what kind of attractants can be used and when they can be used. This means you might be able to have a salt block out until the day before the bow opener, but then it has to be removed. In some states, there can't be any evidence even in the soil of that salt block or mineral station. This has gotten more than a few people in trouble over the years, especially when they shoot a monster buck and the jealousy thing comes out and people call them in for a suspected violation, a violation they might not even have known they committed. You also have some states where mineral blocks are just fine, but anything that can be construed as bait isn't. So put another way, if an attractant has some type of food in it, you can't use it. There are a lot of attractants on the markets with names like, I don't know, Super Big Buck Mineral Magnet or Giant Toad Buck Cocaine that promises your deer will be hooked on it and party like it's 1983 in Miami. What you need to be aware of with those products is that they often have some food component or ingredient in them, even if they really aren't advertised that way. A little bit of corn mixed in or some kind of ground up apples or whatever food source is in there. And now you're on the wrong side of the law when you thought it was just maybe some kind of a mineral thing. Pay attention to your local laws. Uh, scratch that. Pay attention to your current local laws because this stuff's always changing. And make sure you don't do something silly like buying a product that is totally illegal and then putting it out there and advertising it to the world when you start posting your summer images on the gram. Now, before I move on from this, I just want to say one more thing about it. Even if your local sporting goods store sells something, that doesn't mean it's legal to use in your state. I can go to my local Cabela's 
right before the gun season opens in Minnesota and see pallets of corn, bags of corn. I can see automatic deer feeders. I can see all kinds of products that are totally illegal to use while hunting in my state. That's a cautionary tale on this stuff. And better yet, I'll say that you don't need any of those products to take inventory. In fact, I think it's more valuable to gather your intel a more old-fashioned way. So you might you might want to think about inventory differently. Instead of contriving a situation to concentrate deer in a three-foot circle, you have to take stock in what your ground offers and to decide where are the best places to put your cameras to capture the images of all the deer that live there. This does a couple things for you. First off, attracting the local deer to one spot and taking pictures of them tells you very little. It does tell you who is around, which seems like the only goal. And it does tell you, I guess, what direction they approach the mineral site from. That's maybe a little bit valuable. But beyond that, it doesn't really do you much. That's as basic of inventory as you're going to get. And that might be enough for some folks. That might be okay. But if you can't or don't want to use some kind of attractant, then you're in a different spot. You've got to think about how you can strategically capture images of as many deer as possible while building up your hit list in a more natural way. Obvious spots for this include field edges and food plots, but you can also dive a little deeper and post a camera up over a pond or other water source, or maybe focus on a fence crossing or some other high traffic area you find. I really like this style of taking inventory for two reasons. The first is that while it's not as easy as just using some kind of attractant to concentrate deer, it will still show you a complete roster of the deer on your property. The second is that it combines actual scouting with taking inventory. That's important. While it's nice to know that there are three bucks using your ground that would all score between, say, 130 and 150 inches, it's better to know that, plus know that the biggest buck loves to water a certain stock tank and that the two other decent deer always seem to travel together and they really like to use one certain trail that leads out to the neighbor's bean field. In this way, there's a very thin membrane that divides deer inventory from good old summer scouting. But there's more. Let's say you're a public land hunter and would never, ever, ever name a deer in your life. You just like to hunt and you make your judgment call on who gets shot by who walks down the trail and gets your heart pounding. Now, if that's you and you don't listen to too much pop country, we could probably be best friends or pretty good friends anyway. Now, all potential friendships aside, there might be another reason to take inventory. You know, first off, it's just fun to know who's around. Even if you think the bucks you get on camera will be pushed out long before you have a chance to shoot them, it never hurts the old motivation any to know there are some big bucks around in your neighborhood. You might also want to just know what caliber a buck is mostly available, or how many deer are using the woods in total or at least as much of that as you can know. So let's say you live in a not-so-great trophy state, and you just want to have a rough idea what your odds are of shooting a certain kind of buck. And your summer inventory, whether on a salt lick or on natural movement, shows you that the entire crop of bucks all appear to be under three and a half years old. This is really not uncommon, and it is telling. It tells you that holding out for a 170-incher is pretty stupid. And in fact, that holding out for maybe a 125-incher might be almost equally as stupid. 
It might show you that a 97-inch two-year-old is a real, actual trophy in your region. That's good knowledge to have. And besides the bucks, a comprehensive look at all the deer, or most of the deer, in your woods will tell you, you know, if you should shoot five does all this season or just let every mama walk. Now, a lot of hunters default to the state biologist or wildlife biologist or whoever is deciding on tag allocations, but I don't. Of course, you can't just overshoot the available tags because that's poaching and not good. But there are situations where the recommendation might be for everyone to get three antlerless tags or some county being allotted a certain amount of doe tags, which seems like way too much from your perspective. Maybe you just feel like after a month or two of inventory that it would be best for the herd if you laid off the does. Or maybe you see so many deer on camera that you greenlight yourself to fill your freezer this fall and fill every antlerless tag they'll sell you. I realize this is a weird tangent, but in some ways we all own some level of responsibility with the deer we hunt besides the obvious. We know our woods and we know our critters that live in them better most of the time than somebody who's never been there could know. Somebody who might be using population models to predict how many deer are living there and they've never set foot in the county that you hunt in. Now, even if you think it possibly really can't matter one way or the other whether you personally shoot one or 10 deer this season, it's still up to us to police ourselves to some extent. We are the stewards of this resource, and I think we should be in tune to it at the very least. Inventory helps us with that. It's all right, enough of that tangent, because I want to talk about something else with summer inventory. The fact that it's often grade A bullshit. Uh, Well, not exactly. That's too harsh. But I've interviewed quite a few deer biologists in my life who have done extensive research on summer ranges and home ranges and everything related to where deer live. And all of them have said at one point or another that some bucks are homebodies and some bucks just aren't. Some deer, and we really still don't know the reason for this, have a spring and summer range and then a fall and winter range. Those ranges might be miles apart. And while not every deer lives this way, the ones that do seem to be pretty reliable in their migrations. This doesn't seem to be tied to available food or summer cover or anything like we can definitively put our fingers on yet. But I refuse to believe it isn't some evolutionary path that took hold in certain deer and not others. That means it is, or more likely was, beneficial to the deer somehow. Now, it might be or it might not be. We don't know. And it really doesn't matter. That's all just kind of purely academic and it's kind of fun to think about. But the reality is, is we just need to acknowledge that that exists and those traits vary from buck to buck. Some are homebodies, some aren't. And what we do know is that you might run a camera on a corn pile all summer long and have every buck named and suddenly right around the bow opener, two of your hit listers are just gone. Poof. And you think maybe they got hit by a car or maybe the neighbor poached them or maybe aliens sucked them up to the mothership to try venison for the first time. It doesn't matter where they went because they are gonzo and that is that. Now, they are gone from you, but somewhere down the road, some other hunter will be the beneficiary of a few new bucks that just showed up out of nowhere. He's probably sitting there thinking, what the hell? Where did these bucks come from? Now, that sucks if you're the one who loses the bucks but it's pretty awesome if you're the one who gains a couple good bucks. And even if you're on the losing end of this deal, the good news is that you might pick up a few fresh recruits from somewhere else. And if not, oh well, 
they are just deer. And on that note, I want to talk about one last thing with summer inventory. Don't get married to it. Or more specifically, don't fall in love with the bucks that you see and get images of all summer long. Some of them will undoubtedly be around for you in the fall, and some of them will undoubtedly be gone. Some deer might live on your place. Others might pass through from time to time. The buck that you have the most pictures of, who you know is going to bed on a certain knob and always enters the soybeans from a specific trail, the buck who is, I don't know, all of 25 or 30 inches bigger than anything you've ever shot before, and he's oh so predictable in his patterns, that buck might just disappear. Or he might get shot by your neighbor opening morning who has the deer hunting skills of a throw pillow and probably drank six bush lattes before climbing into a Widowmaker wooden tree stand he built with his grandpa 73 years ago. Hunting works like that. The point here is that even though you thought that buck was yours, he wasn't. He never was. They aren't until we wrap our tags around their antlers. And that's how this stuff goes. So inventory is cool. It can be really fun to take stock in the local whitetails and get involved in a little census taking. It can prove to be a useful tool for overall decision making throughout the season and even help you become a better hunter when you're doing it. It can do a lot of things for you regardless of the type of land you hunt or the type of hunter you are. But it also can lead to some of the nastiness that just rears its ugly head up in deer hunting quite often because it's never easier to expose yourself to trophy bucks than through summer trail camera usage. And that trophy over everything else mentality, the hatred for other hunters or neighboring landowners, and all that stuff honestly can just lead to a weird hatred of the deer. Well, I don't know, hatred's probably too strong of a word, but it can lead to a lot of frustration. A lot of frustration, actually, which tends to show up when the bucks we count on decide they're going to ghost us faster than a crazy Tinder hookup. That's life, part of deer hunting. The bucks, you know, no matter how familiar we get with them, they'll almost always give us the slip. They'll almost always tease us with their presence and then prove to us that they are better at surviving than we are at killing them. But that's also what keeps us coming back. And if you can learn to live with it, keeps us developing a love for them and this weird game we play where we try to run sharp sticks through their ribs. It's a wild thing we do here, this obsession of ours. And taking inventory can be this accretive, enjoyable aspect as long as we don't let it add too much fuel to the crazy antler fire that, that is so prone to burning out of control. <sighs> anyway, so take that for what it's worth and come back next week. The next episode is going to be a morale booster, a self-confidence booster, a plea to get you to understand how good of a deer hunter you are and how good of a deer hunter you could become. Because really, after a year of droning on and on and on, which is a line I stole from a wonderful song called Black Dogs and Bubbles, I'm going to tell you how freaking awesome you are at this and why that matters. I'm going to lay it all out because that's what I want to talk about next week. And I want to get into more of that stuff as we enter into the year two of this foundations podcast. So I hope you stick around with me. That's it for this week. My whitetail obsessed friends. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been the where to hunt foundations podcast, which is brought to you by first light. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your support. And if you want to get some more whitetail content, you can head on over to themeateater.com slash wired to read all kinds of articles by Mark, myself, Bo Martonic, Andy May, a whole bunch of whitetail killers. Or you can visit our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to see the weekly how-to videos that we drop covering a whole wide range of 
how-tos, whitetail science, you name it, strategy, whatever. Head on over there, check them out. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.